Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Where I'm going to tell you something, and I hope it doesn't hurt your feelings. It probably will. I just don't know if you know this or not, but you're not my only friend. What? I'm actually surprised by that. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. This is actually a mutual friend of ours, Corey, that um, I want to read a text from him. And by the way, he is such an awesome friend, such a good person. When I read this text, it's going to make it seem like he's really ignorant. And that's not what I'm trying to get across. It's just funny. Some of the questions he brought up. And so I'll start with this. Let's do it. So he sent a link to an article about water conservation. And then he sent a text that says, I don't understand how reducing water consumption is an important thing. Like does water not evaporate and get recycled? What am I missing? And I bring up that question because it just shows, I think a lot of people don't really get why it's not just a perpetual system that will never cause any problems. I responded and I said, I think some places are just really low on fresh water. If you live in Phoenix and you water your lawn and it gets evaporated, it probably won't rain back down in Phoenix. So it's an issue of getting water to the places that need it. There's also all the processing that is required for water treatment. If I flush water down the toilet, a lot of work and energy is required to make that water suitable to come out of my faucet again. In his response, he said, oh, so it's really all about time. The water doesn't leave planet Earth and 100% it can eventually be reused. So wasting water simply means it'll be longer before we can use it again. My response, I said, well, there's that. And 
there's not really a way to transport it to the areas that need it most, like if a river is dried up that we depend on for thousands of acres of farmland and millions of homes, there aren't really any options. Plus, if fresh water gets evaporated and then it rains down over the ocean, we now can't use it for consumption unless it goes through a really expensive energy-intensive process. And he said, that makes sense. And then he sent some funny cat memes and changed the subject. Sounds about right. Anyways, as you hear that, Corey, what are your thoughts? You know, I think the word ignorance is often used in sort of a derogatory way. But I think the reality is that that most people do live in ignorance. And it just simply means they don't know. They don't understand. And this is one of those topics that isn't necessarily intuitive. It's not something that we would necessarily think about or understand without learning about it. Especially because drought is something that changes on a pretty long time scale. So we don't necessarily really get to see the drought cycle happening and the positive feedback loops that occur. And so I think for a lot of people, they just think that it rains, we consume the water, it evaporates, that turns back into rain, and the cycle just continues. But hearing that text makes me excited to be able to do this episode where we can actually talk through that a little bit and really kind of focus on the consequences of drought and why it occurs. So we've done an episode before, it was episode 24, and it was titled Water Crisis and Conflict. And in that episode, we talked about freshwater, the importance of freshwater. We talked about a lot of different places around the world where there is a shortage of freshwater and why. We talked a lot about ground wells and, and things like that. And, and then we specifically tied it into conflicts arising from there being a shortage of water. Now, this episode is more around the idea of drought. It's different from that episode in that we're going to focus on how past societies have succumbed to drought. We're going to talk about specific consequences to drought and also why drought happens and why it's going to get worse. This episode is especially relevant today to many all around the world, um, especially to many in the U.S. who are listening to this podcast who live in the U.S. West or the Southwest, where there's currently a mega drought that has been going on for decades. Yeah, and for this episode, I spent some time looking at the way that drought has contributed to the collapse of past civilizations. And I was pretty shocked. In fact, I think if we could go back, we should maybe rename the podcast. Breaking down drought. Collapse. It's all drought. (laughs) (laughs) Start out some ideas. Basically, like, I kind of felt like we should rename it drought. Oh, and other reasons why civilizations collapse. (laughs) Drought and the few other reasons that civilizations collapse. (laughs) It's just amazing how so much research points to the fact that many past civilizations collapsed either with drought as the primary reason or as a major contributing factor. And some of this is emerging research. So for example, there's an ancient civilization, a region known as Transoxiana. It says Transoxiana or Transoxania is the Latin name for a region and civilization located in lower central Asia, roughly corresponding to modern day eastern Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, southern Kazakhstan, and southern Kyrgyzstan. Anyways, that gives you an idea of where it's at. But there were some assumptions that the reason the civilization in that area kind of all fell apart was because of a Mongol invasion. But after doing some research, they've got these really fascinating ways that they can analyze the sand 
to see when it was last touched by sunlight, which allows them to determine when like a river dried up. I'm getting flashbacks to our paleoclimatology episode there. (laughs) Some PTSD from that. (laughs) Yeah. I'll just read from an article where it's quoting one of the individuals who had been involved in the research. It says, we assumed with our dating that the canals would have been abandoned only when the Mongols arrived, Macklin said, but that wasn't the case They were already going into disuse probably 100 years before. Later, he says, when the Mongol army arrived in 1218, there had been probably 100 to 150 years of prolonged drought, and already the place wasn't in good shape. And as the article continues, it talks about how there had been a past Arab invasion, and yet that was during a wet period, and so the region was able to recover really quickly and still prosper afterwards. But they were in this state of decline later on because of an extended drought, which made it so they basically got wiped out as a result of this Mongol invasion. It's interesting to hear that because it just is another evidence that collapse isn't about one specific thing happening. It's always a convergence of multiple different things happening at once. But it sounds like from what you're saying that drought has played a big part, like you said, if not the primary part, at least a contributing factor in many different collapses. Do you have other examples? Yeah, there there are a lot of examples. In fact, there's a book that's called Drought. It was written in 2011, or at least published in 2011, from drought experts Justin Sheffield and Eric Wood of Princeton. And what they did is they basically went through and listed out 10 empires or civilizations that collapsed because of drought. Wow. And I haven't read the book, but There is an article, we can link to it, where somebody has basically summarized and talked through each of those civilizations and has even linked to the research that's cited in the book. And this isn't just like a wild guess or, you know, some offhand hypothesis that such and such civilization collapsed as a result of drought. They've peer-reviewed articles in prestigious journals where they talk about all the evidence in in many of these situations. And by the way, I I like what this individual says. His name is Jeff Masters. He's the one who wrote the article where he summarizes the book. He says, drought is the great enemy of human civilization. Drought deprives us of the two things necessary to sustain life, food and water. When the rains stop and the soil dries up, cities die and civilizations collapse. So, Corey, I want to just quickly talk through these 10 empires, civilizations. Some of them I'll only just mention. A couple of others we'll talk through in a little more detail. Perfect. Let's do it. Okay. So, the first one, the Akkadian Empire in Syria. And citing from a research paper about it, it says, Geochemical correlation of volcanic ash shards between the archaeological site and marine sediment record establishes a direct temporal link between Mesopotamian aridification and social collapse, implicating a sudden shift to more arid conditions as a key factor contributing to the collapse of the Akkadian Empire. Anyways, they're they're able to tie this back to a 100-year drought that brought a 30% decline in precipitation to Syria. So you can only imagine how devastating that would be. That same drought is one of the main factors in, in bringing down the old kingdom of ancient Egypt. So they would normally have floods on the Nile River to fertilize the fields, but it says because of a lack of that, poor harvests led to reduced 
tax income, and insufficient funds to finance the pharaoh's government, hastening the collapse of Egypt's pyramid-building Old Kingdom. It talks about the late Bronze Age civilization in the Eastern Mediterranean. Another one I thought was interesting was the, the Maya civilization in Mexico. It says severe drought killed millions of Maya people due to famine and lack of water and initiated a cascade of internal collapses that destroyed their civilization at the peak of their cultural development. We've got the Tang Dynasty in China, which is interesting because it was at the same time as the Mayan collapse, but you know, on the other side of the world. It says dynastic changes in China often occurred because of popular uprisings during crop failure and famine associated with drought, which speaks to what you said before, Corey, that there's multiple factors, right? Like when people get desperate, when there's not enough food and water, then there's these uprisings and society starts to crumble. Yeah. I mean, that was a huge factor, food prices, right? In the Arab Spring, which we've talked about before. And that's a recent example so I think in, in history's past, when drought, as you're explaining here, has been taken to an extreme, in this case in China, it led to a series of changes in dynasty because of that. Yeah, and because you mentioned that recent example, I'll skip to that one. That's actually one that they call out in the book. The article about it says, Syria's devastating civil war that began in March 2011 has killed over 300,000 people, displaced at least 7.6 million and created an additional 4.2 million refugees. While the causes of the war are complex, a key contributing factor was the nation's devastating drought that began in 1998. The drought brought Syria's most severe set of crop failures in recorded history. So it also mentions the Tiwanaku Empire in Bolivia. We're talking 300 to 1000 AD. The Anasazi, which I, I believe they now call the Puebloan Empire. The Khmer Empire in Cambodia, the Ming Dynasty in China, which speaking of that one, the Ming Dynasty says that it collapsed at a time when the most severe drought in the region in over 4,000 years was occurring, according to sediments from a lake that I can't pronounce. <laughs> Anyways, the point is that when you get some sort of a climate shift or you get other factors that cause a drought in a region, it is absolutely devastating. And we have plenty of examples of that. Well, it's a good thing that the drought that we're facing today is the only issue that we have. I'd start to worry if there was a convergence of any other type of factor. Luckily, we can say everything is peachy besides the drought. <laughs> That's why it's taken us, you know, 91 episodes to get here. All leading up to this one episode. <laughs> so it's fascinating for me to hear all these historical examples of drought. And it's unfortunate that we don't have all of the details. It'd be really interesting to know sort of step by step how that drought caused their collapses. What exact consequences did it have and what did those consequences lead to? And while we don't have all of that historical information, I think it's enough to know that drought caused those collapses in the first place. But that being said, we do know today of a lot of different consequences that come from persistent drought. So I'd like to talk for a minute just about what some of those consequences are, some of the chain reactions or some of the positive feedback loops that come when persistent drought takes place. And to start this, I think it might be interesting to highlight an argument that I saw on the Collapse subreddit. There were two commenters that were talking about whether or not cities are going to be completely abandoned due to drought. I believe that this article on the subreddit was talking about the drought impacts on Phoenix and the water restrictions that are going on there. 
And somebody was saying that they expected that Phoenix would completely basically be devoid of people in the coming decade or two. And the other person, the other commenter was saying, no, it doesn't work like that. They're not just going to lose all the people and, and gave their reasons why. And at least in the, the short run, I agree with the second person. I think some people think like, okay, if there is a drought, that means that suddenly there will be no more water to an area and people can't live without water. So they will have to leave and there will be mass migrations. But when you talk about the types of collapses that have happened in the past through drought, it didn't happen all at once. One of your examples, you mentioned there had been a drought going on for 100 to 150 years. It's a shift that takes place over time. And when I think of what happens to a, a city or a region that's impacted by drought, and, and especially a, a severe or serious drought, I think of a place like Detroit and sort of what happened to Detroit over the years. I think of the economic impacts that come from a drought. And obviously, I'm not saying here that Detroit is the way that it is because of drought. Mostly, I'm speaking about the economic impacts on an area when industry starts to leave. So as an example, in Arizona, where this argument was taking place, somewhere around 8% of the workforce is in agriculture. But the majority of water usage in the state is agriculture. So you've got 8% of the population working in it, but most of the state's water is being taken up by agriculture. You know, you're trying to grow crops in the desert, and really a very small percentage of water is used up by municipalities. I think this was discussed in our water crisis episode. We talked about how it's something like, on average, 11% of all water usage is municipal water usage, and the rest is for agriculture and, and industries. And that number is pretty consistent even in large cities and metropolitan areas. So the first sort of big impact in a state like Arizona, if there are water decreases, is going to be in industry and agriculture. And part of this argument is, is I've seen people say, well, big ag and big industry, they're not going to allow for that to happen. They're going to lobby. People will have their water cut off before these industries will. But the truth of the matter is those industries take up so much water that you could completely erase the municipality altogether and there still wouldn't be enough water for the agriculture to carry on. So some way or another, agriculture does not get the water that it needs. And right now with a lot of the water cuts that we're seeing, it is exactly that. It's farmers being affected. They cannot get the normal number of acre feet that, that they usually get. And so if you have 8% of people working in agriculture and agriculture disappears from an area, those people have to either find jobs somewhere else or more likely those people have to find new jobs in different industries or more likely they're going to leave the area to continue working in agriculture somewhere else. And you can imagine the economic impact of having 8% of your population leave. House prices start to decrease. It can lead to people feeling stuck in that area because as their house prices decrease, they don't want to sell because then they don't have enough equity going to the next place. No one wants to buy their home anymore. They can't really afford to leave. Crime can start to increase and that starts to create this sort of downward spiral into a city that's got serious economic issues. As other industries begin to leave because of either lack of water or lack of a workforce increase in crime, it just starts to leave that area in more and more of a, an economic downturn. So for that reason, I tend to side with this idea that no, homes are not going to have their water cut off out of nowhere. It's a relatively small amount. There's more than enough water 
to continue feeding those homes, but there will be economic impacts from a decrease in agriculture and industry. So I just thought that argument was interesting and to kind of look at it from that perspective. One paper that I read, this was an academic paper on California's drought. It was titled, What If California's Drought Continues? It was written in 2015. They were already four years into this drought, and they were talking about what the future of California over the next few years could look like if drought continued. And they said, the greatest vulnerabilities are in some low-income rural communities where wells are running dry and in California's wetlands, rivers, and forests where the state's iconic biodiversity is under extreme threat. They also highlighted that big cities seem to be safest in regards to water. So it was really these rural communities where there was low income. They were the ones that were going to be suffering. And then, of course, they added in the biodiversity and ecosystems of the wetlands, rivers, and forests. And this is super fascinating because this was written seven years ago, and we're seeing articles now about rural communities in California who are out of water. Their wells are drying up, or they're getting contaminated, which is a consequence of drought, and it's basically creating these ghost towns. So I can see, obviously, people leaving small rural areas where their water is hyper-localized once you're out, you're out. But I do feel like the big cities are going to have a little bit of a slower downward spiral. So let's talk about some just overall sort of short-term immediate consequences that can happen from drought. I've got a pretty solid list here, so I'll kind of just bust through these. Hold on. Did you say short-term? Yeah. Thanks for bringing that up. Maybe I should correct. I should say they're more visible. They're immediate. They're not necessarily ones that are going to take 150 years and a chain reaction of 15 causal links to make something happen. Drought immediately affects these things. Got it. So uh, drought can decrease snowpack. Uh, so rivers are going to flow with less water. Reservoirs are going to be emptier, which is something that we're seeing right now. We'll get to that more in a moment. Um, it reduces moisture levels in the soil. So that makes agriculture obviously more difficult. Um, you know, we talked about the difference between soil and dirt in our episode on peak soil. When there's less moisture in the soil to begin with, it basically means that more water has to be introduced through irrigation, but there's less water due to snowpack melt, so it's sort of this double problem there. Prolonged drought can lead to aridification, and that's basically what the definition of aridification is. It's when an area has chronic drought, which can then eventually lead to desertification where it just becomes a desert. Less moisture in the soil also means that the natural vegetation is affected. So I think we think a lot about crops and farmland, but as the regular soil starts to dry up and natural vegetation disappears, that has a negative consequence on local biodiversity and local ecosystems, which then, of course, will have a chain reaction throughout the whole system. A drought can also cause bodies of water to heat up, um, which affects fish, it affects other species that are in rivers and lakes. We've heard a lot in the last few years about salmon runs in California and a severe threat of extinction for entire rivers of salmon. And it is from exactly this. Their water is getting too warm for them to live in, number one, but also to reproduce in. Here's an interesting one. So droughts actually decrease air quality. It's not something that's really thought of much. Um, but as those lake beds dry up and soil turns into dirt, air quality decreases when the wind blows that dust. And, and we think of like the Dust Bowl, right, in the U.S. and how it was just the air was constantly filled with dust as the wind blew through. And right now, actually, there's uh, a worry in Utah in the Great Salt Lake. 
and there's a whole article on this that's pretty fascinating, but as it dries up, there's going to be heightened levels of arsenic in the air that will come off of that dried lake bed. So there's arsenic, there's a bunch of other heavy metals that have settled under layers of soil on the lake bed from mining and other industrial operations. They were safely nestled under the soil, but now that it's drying up, as layers of that are removed from windstorms or whatever it might be, there's a high likelihood that those metals are going to start to blow up into the air and then blow east, basically into the Salt Lake Valley. Some other consequences, um, as water stagnates, rivers aren't flowing as quickly. Again, this is when we talked about in water crisis. This makes it a breeding ground for mosquitoes and other insects, which can lead to increases in disease like West Nile virus. It also decreases the water quality. So when you think of many places that rely on these sources of water for hygiene and bathing, that can have serious consequences in, in disease spread. And um, you've probably seen photos. There's some going around recently of people doing sacred bathing rituals in a river in India, and it's just covered in toxic foam. And this foam comes from industrial waste nearby, but people rely on those rivers and as whether it is industrial waste or whether it's drought causing an increase in disease spread within those rivers, uh, it really can become a dangerous thing. E. coli and salmonella are more prevalent in water during drought, which I thought was interesting. Obviously, hydroelectric dams that rely on high water levels can't be maintained, which can also lead to an increase in energy costs, and that puts strain on the entire energy system. That's a whole other topic that we've covered here and there, but water levels are incredibly important for, for our energy consistency. Wow, you're making it sound like drought is just really peachy. It is fascinating, honestly, to hear that there are so many consequences that somebody like me normally wouldn't think of. I think a lot of us are like, oh no, drought means there's less water on the lake to go wakeboarding. Yeah, and that's that's a legitimate concern just as far as as recreation goes because a lot of places rely on recreation for their economies. I know that Lake Powell, which is drying up, relies on a lot of recreation. You know, the economy relies on people coming and staying in hotels and spending money in shops and restaurants. So this can leave places like that in economic devastation. And beyond that, when it comes to recreation, people will still try and go out on the lake, right? It becomes more dangerous not only because the landscape is different than what they're used to, but there's also certain types of amoeba and pathogens that are more present on the surface water during drought, which can spread disease even to people who are boating or wakeboarding, you know, get a little water in their mouth, whatever that might be. You hear of the sort of flesh-eating bacterias and things like that. Those increase during drought as well. So the last couple here, over the last two decades, Drought has cost over $125 billion at least, and that's just the estimates. Obviously, food costs increase as drought continues. We're experiencing that right now, and we will likely experience that much more in the future. And the last one, uh, transportation. So important waterways like the Mississippi River is the first one that comes to mind, but there are tons of waterways all over the world that rely on high enough levels in order to be able to move shipments through. That can cause a huge bottleneck in supply chains if goods can't go where they need to go. So I am certain 100% that I did not cover all of the consequences here. That was a pretty significant list. Thanks for bearing with me as I busted through those. But I think the main point to take away from it is drought has 
so many more consequences than I think we normally expect it to. And with each one of those having the potential for cascading effects in some other part of a complex system like ours. And it's no wonder that drought has caused collapse in so many previous societies. So that definitely was a long list, but I'm glad you stepped through it. Not only because the length of the list itself shows just how worrisome drought is, but also understanding all those other consequences that we might not always think of highlights the level of concern that we should have around drought. We've talked about past examples of civilizations that were severely negatively impacted by drought. You've talked about some of the reasons why it's so devastating. So now let's highlight a few of the ways in which we are seeing it today. As we're recording this, for example, the Tigris and Euphrates rivers in Iraq are drying up as a result of drought. In East Africa, they're currently facing a drought that is the worst they've seen in four decades. Already, millions of livestock have died and one million people have been displaced. And it doesn't look like there's going to be a, a way out of that anytime really soon. And when you say the worst drought in four decades, that might not sound like a super long amount of time, but we're talking about the Horn of Africa, which is just in constant drought of some form or another. And so the fact that the droughts are worsening and that this is the worst that they've had in such a long time is significant. Yeah, I'm glad you call that out because they have a history of droughts that are extremely devastating. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of people dying. Um, China has a really interesting thing taking place because they've got severe flooding in the south and then they've got intense drought in the north. And this one is interesting because China has had really strict rules, regulations, laws, restrictions around COVID and they have been restricting farmers from planting or harvesting their crops unless they can prove two negative test results. Anyways, it, it's a factor that's combining with the drought that they're facing in the north and the flooding in the south that's causing a lot of issues. You know, Belgium and France have both been facing drought. This spring has been particularly tough for them. It's kind of been a double whammy because fertilizer is more expensive as a result of the war in Ukraine, but that fertilizer that they can get is less effective because of the drought that they're facing. You know, it's funny, as I was doing my research, I took just a couple minutes to think through the other places in the world that are experiencing major drought. And I couldn't really find a comprehensive list that would really talk about which areas were suffering bad droughts and, and to rank them and that sort of thing. I'm sure it exists. I just couldn't find it in my short bit of research. So what I started doing as I realized, I looked at a map and everything just looked red, right? And on a drought map. So I just started Googling places with the word drought after it. And I was taken aback by how many places I would type in the name of the country and drought and click on the news tab on Google. And it was just full of news articles from the last couple of days about the current drought in that area and what it's impacting. Just to list a few that you didn't mention, um, Brazil, Madagascar, Canada, North and South Korea, Italy, Iran, and Pakistan, each just highlighting that all over the world right now, this is happening. Obviously, for us in the United States, we're hearing most about the one happening here, 
but this is affecting millions, tens of millions of people all over the globe, both directly in that that's where they live, and it's likely affecting billions in that it's changing the landscape of our supply chains of the cost of food, of energy, and other vital resources. Yeah, and something that you said there was that those are just the ones that you could find when you would search for anything about drought in a specific area. And so there are probably lots of other places across the globe that are currently facing drought. We've just mentioned a handful here. Yeah, I'll say that I I had a list of about 10 different places, and I probably only searched 14 or 15. So of, of the 15 that I searched, there was only four or five that didn't really pull up any drought results. Well, with that, we keep alluding to this drought that's taking place in the western United States. And I think it'd be worthwhile to mention a few interesting facts there. You know, Lake Mead and Lake Powell are the two largest reservoirs in the U.S. And when you think about water, the way that we store water on a large scale is reservoirs. If we don't have reservoirs, if we haven't stored the water that way, then we're just dependent on a constant, consistent supply. And so so the only way we can control the timing and the consistency of getting water where we need it is through these reservoirs. You know, Lake Mead gets water from Lake Powell. It feeds the Hoover Dam. But here are some things that I found that to me are just alarming. So first of all, from the water that is funneled from Lake Mead for usage, 75% of that water goes to irrigation for farmland that supplies 60% of the nation's food. So you might think if you're an American citizen, hey, I live in the eastern United States. I'm not too worried about this drought. But so much of the food, 60% of the nation's food comes from this area that's being affected. Which is made even more interesting by the fact that like 75% of people live east of the Rockies in the U.S. So 60% of the food is grown in an area where only 25% of the people live. The other 75% of people who aren't immediately affected by drought and that they're not noticing it because they're getting plenty of rainfall, they're being affected because their food supply is tightening. Yeah, it's a good way to highlight the complexity of our entire system, right? And how much we rely on each part working the way it's supposed to. So if you look at photos from a few decades ago of Lake Mead compared to now, it is shocking. In fact, Lake Mead is 178 feet lower than in 1983. And when you think of 180 three feet. Like if you stand next to a building that's 183 feet tall and look up at that and just imagine water levels being that much higher in an area the size of Lake Mead, that is just a massive volume of water. I can't even imagine. Yeah. So for context, Lake Mead has now dropped below 30%. It's only 30% full. So as I was doing some research on this, you know, there's, there's kind of an interesting range of reactions to it. On one hand, people are panicking. On the other hand, people are saying, no, we're just fine. But I listened to what a few experts said about it, and I I just picked out a few comments that I thought were interesting. One thing that was stated was they said it's like it's a slow-moving train wreck. It's not like this year or next year suddenly we're going to be completely out of water. You know, Arizona, California, in multiple areas, they are starting to restrict water usage. They're telling people they can't water their lawns as much. 
They've found, you know, ways to get as much crop yield as they have in the past with less water. They've found ways to stretch out the usage with less of this critical resource. But in some ways, that's just kind of delaying the problem, especially as the population just keeps on growing. So a lot of people won't really notice a direct impact for years, but we're gradually moving in this really scary direction. You know, this year marks year 22 or 23 of this ongoing drought, this mega drought, and a lot of climate scientists are saying that it's never going to come back, that this is aridification. It's not just a temporary drought that we're actually establishing a new baseline. But in order for us to like with Lake Mead, for example, to fill Lake Mead back up, we would need to have over a decade of consistent above average snowfall in the Rockies. So this isn't just something that hit us all at once. This is something that's been going on for decades. We're finding ways to stretch it out a little bit further, but we're heading towards that cliff and we're gradually getting further and further down that road, putting in place all these temporary measures to get by. But a lot of it is so that they can get by until 2026, which is when a collection of states and tribes are slated to get together, they have to decide what the new rules are going to be for how the water gets used and how it's regulated. And there's a lot of good people, smart people trying to find ways to collaborate there, but there are extremely strong opinions because nobody wants to have to get a smaller piece of a shrinking pie. Yeah, I think that is gearing up to be the legal battle of the ages. I think it is going to be really just epically dramatic. I think there's going to be a lot of issues involved there. And the problem is where it's this big bureaucratic thing involving so many different states and like you said, entities, tribes, this is not something that's going to be resolved quickly. And at the rate at which things are moving with this drought, how quickly things are happening with Lake Mead and Lake Powell and the Colorado River, four years from now is a long time. And so what changes between now and then? You know, what do things look like in that moment? And then figuring out how to allocate and who to allocate water to, and I guess more importantly, who to take water from. It seems pretty obvious that the most likely to be affected are going to be those in poorer areas. We already talked about the poorer rural areas are likely to be most affected. And unfortunately, that includes reservations and tribes, I think they will be the first to have water rights removed, which is for so many obvious reasons that don't need stating that it's devastating, but it's honestly no surprise. And I think it will unfortunately be another example of viewing these areas that are, that are going to be affected as sort of the others, right? Humans always find ways to justify things by viewing them as others. And whether that is reservations or whether it is just poor communities, it's viewed as a necessary consequence of being able to continue status quo in the wealthier parts of the country. Well, it's like what we've talked about before, that millions of people have died in Africa from starvation, from drought. There's so many awful things that have taken place there. The diseases, you know, the civil war in many parts of Africa. And yet most people don't even know about it. Or if they do know about it, they just kind of think, well, that's just how it works in that part of the world. 
And so I think you're right that as sad as it is, you know, human nature is to focus on what impacts you directly. And especially if it's a marginalized group, less attention and concern is directed that way. So I really like it when you explain that you put that emphasis on this is not a sudden thing. This has been coming for a long time. It is a slow moving train wreck. I quoted a paper earlier called What If California's Drought Continues? And there's a couple interesting points that I think to make there. It talks about how this is the worst drought since records began in the 1800s. So who knows really how long before that. And I see a lot of people saying, why is nothing being done? They want to demand answers and know why aren't we doing more? And the truth is, and this is made known in this academic paper, that some efforts have been made with hundreds of millions of dollars being spent in California alone in mitigation efforts. It's not like it's just completely being ignored. It's that it's kind of unstoppable, right? The paper says these efforts have helped limit the economic impacts of the drought so far. This was again in 2015. But the experience is also revealing major gaps in California's preparedness to cope with the social and environmental impacts of extended warm droughts. Too many decisions are being made on an emergency basis with the hope that the next winter will bring much needed rain. It would not be prudent to count on El Nino to end the drought. And that is the other side of it, right? Yes, stuff is being done. Money is being spent. There are mitigation efforts in place. They are clearly not enough. But you do, it seems like you hear people often say, we're just, we just got to count on having better rain this spring, better snow this winter. A good snowpack will bring us back. It's like leaders are sort of living on this hope. The problem will just sort of take care of itself. And that if it doesn't, at least it will probably happen when they're not in office anymore. And this paper is clearly pointing out that we can no longer hope for things to simply resolve themselves by having a better snowpack this winter. Kellen, you mentioned it's going to take a decade of above average snowpack to bring things out of drought in the West. And a big reason for that and why it's getting tougher and tougher for any prospects of getting out of drought is that there are positive feedback loops in drought. I'd like to turn to some aspects of how drought is getting worse with climate change and why climate change makes these droughts worse, and why we can expect to see them become more intense in the future. So overall, heat amplifies the effects of a drought. And obviously with global warming, we know that average temperatures are increasing and some areas are having higher increases than others. So those are areas that are more prone to intense drought. As those temperatures increase, there's increased evaporation off of rivers, lakes, and reservoirs. It also continues pulling more moisture from the soil. So as those two things happen, as more water is pulled from reservoirs and lakes, and as moisture is pulled from the soil, it means that more precipitation than normal is required to replenish those areas. In a typical normal non-drought year, the amount of rain that you need is to supply the already moist soil, what water it needs for the crops. But now we have to provide water to make the soil moist again and enough water for the crops. So the worse that it gets, the more that you need to get back to normal. I talked earlier about how snowpack decreases, glaciers melt. This is a problem because those are essentially water storage for later parts of the year. If those are melting sooner or becoming smaller, it means that later on in the year and gradually becoming earlier and earlier in the year, there's not enough water already by that point 
And that's at a point when there's already less rain happening. So if the summer rolls around, it's not raining for months at a time. There's no snowpack that's melting at that point. The rivers are running dry. There's essentially nothing else that can be done at that point to replenish that water source. As the global average temperature continues to increase and localized temperatures increase even more, this can also create less snowfall, which I thought this was interesting. You know, earlier we talked about the Great Salt Lake in Utah. So there's something there called the lake effect. And typically warm, moist air rises from that lake and mixes with the cold, dry air moving overhead, which results in more precipitation and snowfall primarily that falls because of that lake effect. So as the lake dries up, there's going to be less snow, which then affects the snowpack as well. And with an increased melt, makes that snowpack decrease even more. So these feedback loops just continue to worsen. And, you know, most climate models show a heightened variability in precipitation as the planet warms. And this goes back to, Kellen, what you were talking about in China, how you've got one area that's just in complete drought and another area that has an overabundance of rain. Every year we hear about in China how the Three Gorges Dam is going to burst, right? Everyone talks about how that's going to happen because there's just an absolutely intense amount of rain, whereas other parts of China are just being decimated by drought. And rainfall alone isn't enough to fix drought, right? So people see a bunch of rain, they're like, oh, it's flooding, this is great news, the drought's over, but that's not necessarily true. Most time it's it's not true at all. A great rainfall month doesn't mean there's going to be more snowpack. It doesn't mean that there's going to be the ability for long-term watering. It just means that that water is running over the top of dry soil and is more likely to flood and cause more economic issues, more crop failures. It's also really bad for dams. We've talked about how the world's dams are getting old, they're becoming weaker. So as we have more intense rainfall in certain areas and flash flooding, that can, that can spell a lot of trouble for dams. And then lastly, we've talked in previous episodes how as an area heats up and as the soil dries, it can create conditions that makes it so that it's basically a, a vicious cycle of pressure systems that keep precipitation out of that area. There's an increase in heat domes, which forces any and all precipitation to move around that area and just exacerbates aridification and desertification. And these are all things that we are not only seeing now, but we're going to continue to see as climate change worsens and accelerates. You think back to the past and you think of all of the civilizations that you've mentioned that have collapsed due to drought. And those happened in many instances because of natural cycles, some of those including climate change. But in our modern era, in a complex system that is global on a planet where we are experiencing man-made climate change at an ever-accelerating rate with tipping points and feedback loops all starting to manifest themselves. It is frightening to think of the intense impact that drought is going to have and the fact that we're starting to see it now. It really makes you wonder what the next 10, 20, 30 years are going to look like. I think before doing the research for this episode, I had just kind of lumped drought with all other natural disasters. Like in my mind, it fits the same category as hurricanes and floods, wildfires. It's unfortunate that we are seeing an increase in every single one of those. But drought in particular, as we've discussed at length today, is something that can absolutely cripple a civilization. Other natural disasters, it seems like they happen and they're destructive, but they're brief and 
then you can try and recover. Whereas drought just sucks the life out of, you know, a city or a state or a nation. And when you think about us being so interdependent, so globally connected and seeing drought in so many parts of the world, it's alarming. And frankly, it makes the entire concept of collapse that much more real. Yeah, this is one that I feel like we need to circle back on. And I don't know, maybe get really specific about how drought has affected certain areas in other parts of the world. You know, this is something we've brought up several times as we've discussed climate change, natural disasters, global warming. We've talked a lot about how it's going to increase mass migrations. And while earlier I discussed that argument about whether or not entire cities are going to be abandoned all at once, and I sort of sided with the idea that no, it's not going to be one day a city is full and the next day it's abandoned. But that being said, over time there will still be large movements of people out of regions that can't sustain themselves, that can't sustain life, that are becoming economically decimated. There will be movements of people from one area to another. And always that type of migration can increase the probability of conflict, political issues, fascism. So it's just another piece, you know, in the complex puzzle, the chain reactions that can that can happen and be caused by drought. Thanks so much for listening this week. We really appreciate our listeners. We appreciate the support. If you'd like to hear me and Kellen blab on more each week, you can get an extra bonus episode every week by joining us on Patreon. It's five bucks a month, so you're paying like $1.25 per episode. We talk more about current events there. We talk about things that are happening right now. We pick an article from the subreddit or an interesting article that we read during the week. We'd love to see you there. There's a link to it in the description. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.